Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 80, Pirate Classics. Hi, I'm Jake. I'm recording this episode in advance because Nikki and I will be away on an adventure this weekend. We're running something called a Ragnar Relay, where a team of 12 people runs from the beach in Hull to the very tip of Cape Cod in Provincetown. We're going to be running past the site of some amazing pirate history, and our team is pirate-themed. So, as you might guess, we're going to play three classic pirate stories this week. The first two clips will highlight the role Boston played in the golden age of piracy, while the third discusses Puritan minister Cotton Mather's complicated relationship with the pirates whose execution he oversaw. But before we talk about pirates in Boston history, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Pirates didn't play by the rules, so we're throwing away our rulebook this week. Since there are so many pirate-related sites on the Cape, and since we'll be spending our weekend running past all of them at odd times of the day and night, we're actually going to feature a historic site on Cape Cod this week. In the spring of 1717, Black Sam Bellamy's pirate crew was sailing their ship the Ouida along the shores of Cape Cod. The Ouida was a slave ship that they had captured and converted to a heavily armed pirate ship. Now, it was loaded down with the booty from at least 50 ships they had captured as they sailed up the east coast of North America. On April 26th, they ran into a huge storm and the ship capsized and sank, never to be seen again. At least, not until 1984. A treasure hunter named Barry Clifford began working from a map of the wreck made by another treasure hunter back in 1717. Using this real-life treasure map, he began finding ship parts under 14 feet of water and 5 feet of sand. As his team brought up a steady stream of artifacts, they found a ship's bell in mid-1985. Inscribed on it were the words, The Weeda Galley, 1716. With that, the team had proof that they had found the wreck of the Weeda, the only fully authenticated pirate wreck ever found. Over the years, Clifford's team worked in partnership with National Geographic to recover over 200,000 artifacts, including troves of silver and gold. Today, the Weta Pirate Museum in West Yarmouth displays a selection of these artifacts, from shackles used in the Weta's days as a slaver to the gold coins pillaged from the holds of the ships she captured. Here's how the museum's website describes their collection. In addition to her tremendous archaeological importance, the story of the Weta is a vehicle that links a number of important historical events and personalities in a fresh and insightful way. It involves such personalities as cartographer Cyprian Southwick, Puritan minister Cotton Mather, the powerful Adams family of Boston, philosopher Henry David Thoreau, and others. Sam Bellamy, captain of the Weta, was linked to such important pirates of the golden age of piracy as William Kidd, Blackbeard, Bart Roberts, William Condon, Ben Hornigold, Henry Jennings, Oliver Labuse Levasseur, the buzzard, and others. The tragic drama of the Weta shipwreck itself, and the fact that the Weta was a pirate ship carrying an enormous cargo of treasure, ensured her place in American folklore. The legend of pirate captain Black Sam Bellamy and Maria Hallett, the Billingsgate Witch, is particularly enduring and appealing. With elements reminiscent of Shakespeare, Hawthorne, Cooper, Irving, Longfellow, and Sir Walter Scott, it is especially compelling when the historical evidence for the basic core of the story is considered. The museum is open Tuesday through Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Admission is $18.95 for adults and $14.95 for children. 
If you'll be on the Cape, but you're not passing through Yarmouth, there's also a smaller selection of artifacts on display at the Expedition Wida Sea Lab and Learning Center, located right on Macmillan Pier in Provincetown. Having sent you all the way down the Cape for our featured historic site, we're going to send you way up to Danvers for our upcoming event this week. Throughout the year, the Danvers Historical Society is holding a Tuesday film series, which they describe as The local history film series of 2018, presented by Heritage Films of Danvers, will feature a one-hour historical film entitled Two Cape Ann Shipwrecks. The program is unique in its film and discussion style presentation. Dan Trimbley, a volunteer member with the Danvers Historical Society, is the presenter and coordinator of this new bi-monthly Historical Society film series. This Tuesday, May 15th, the featured film has a nautical theme that fits nicely with our pirate tales this week. The film will tell the story of two Cape Ann shipwrecks. In 1922, the USS New Hampshire sank off the coast near Manchester-by-the-Sea. The New Hampshire was almost a century old at that point. Her keel was laid down as the USS Alabama in 1819, and she was ready for launch by 1825. The Navy didn't need a new ship in 1825, so the ship wasn't actually launched for almost 40 years. When the Civil War broke out, there was a need for ships, and the Alabama was renamed the USS New Hampshire and pressed into service to blockade the ports of the traders in South Carolina. After the war, the New Hampshire was used as a training and receiving ship for over a half century. It was renamed the Granite State in 1904, and then in 1921 it burned and sank in the Hudson River in New York City. After it was refloated, it was sold as salvage and set to be towed to the Bay of Fundy to be scrapped. But it never got there. The sad end of that voyage will be one topic of the film. The other shipwreck that you'll see will be the 1939 wreck of the USS Squalus. The Squalus was a Sargo-class submarine that was brand new in 1938. The following May, the Squalus was undergoing testing based out of the U.S. Navy shipyard in Kittery, Maine. On the 19th dive, a valve failed and the aft torpedo room filled with water, killing 26 of the crew. The submarine plummeted to the bottom in 243 feet of water. Working quickly, crews from Boston and Kittery were able to establish communication with the sailors stuck on the sea bottom, and within a few days, the remaining 33 crew members were rescued using a prototype diving bell. In September, the Squalus was brought to the surface, renamed the Sailfish, and sent to the Pacific Ocean in 1940. It would go on to earn nine battle stars in 12 cruises during World War II. The film recounting these heart-pounding stories will be shown at Tapley Memorial Hall in Danvers at 1 p.m. on May 15th. There's a $10 suggested donation. We'll have more information in this week's show notes. Now it's time for this week's main topic. First up is a clip about Boston and the Golden Age of Piracy from episode 34, which first aired in June of 2017. You'll hear about the very first pirate who plied the waters of Massachusetts Bay, the story of a sailor who went from British Navy officer to pirate and back to Navy officer, and the tale of Captain Kidd's betrayal and imprisonment in Boston. Now we turn back the clock to the earliest days of Boston and to the roots of piracy in New England. During the early days of the Golden Age of Piracy, New England waters were an afterthought to the buccaneering opportunities to be found in the Caribbean. These were the days of the Spanish Main, 
When treasure galleons from Spain's Central and South American colonies were preyed on by French and English vessels. Many of them had started out as privateers, with letters of marque from the French or English crowns authorizing them to attack the Spanish enemy. Others were simply drawn by the promise of gold. The French, Spanish, English, and Dutch were major naval powers, but the corners of their empires were far-flung and growing quickly. It was easy for pirates to harass shipping lanes outside the watchful gaze of any nation's navy. With or without letters of mark, the traditional hostility between the great powers made an excellent pretense for attacking the shipping of an enemy nation. While the Caribbean seemed to be saturated with pirates, the rich fishing fleets, commercial trade routes, and lightly defended port towns of New England drew their fair share of pirates during this early period. The very first pirate known to ply the waters off New England made his mark just two years after the town of Boston was founded. Dixie Bull was born in London and moved to the village of Boston in 1631. Bull worked as a trader, sailing the coast of Maine in a small shallop. In June of 1632, he was trading in Penobscot Bay when a small group of Frenchmen attacked his vessel, taking all his trade goods. Dixie Bull returned to Boston with revenge on his mind. According to John Winthrop's journal, he raised a company of 15 more of the English who kept about the East. And with this crew, he sailed north, looking for French vessels to attack. Unfortunately, he found none. With the summer waning, his supplies largely used up, and no Frenchman to be seen, Bull turned pirate. His crew attacked and plundered two or three English trading vessels, similar to his own, to get needed supplies, and they forced a handful of men to join their crew or be killed. Having once gone pirate, there was no going back. To be caught would mean certain death at a hangman's gallows. Dixie Bull only upped the stakes, making the decision to attack a lightly defended port town. His crew sailed into Pemaquid, Maine and looted a trading post there, getting all of their loot back into the shallop without resistance. However, just as they weighed anchor, a shot rang out from shore, and Bull's second-in-command fell dead. The first sight of blood seemed to shake Bull's confidence in the pirate life, and he tried to convince the next captain whose vessel he captured to navigate his shallop to Virginia. Puritans at the time considered Virginia a nest of rogues, whores, dissolute, and rooking persons so it might have seemed like an attractive pirate hideout. The captain refused this request, so Dixie Bull and his crew continued attacking main trading posts. On November 21, 1632, word of Dixie's rampage reached Boston. Governor John Winthrop received a letter from Captain Walter Neal of Piscataqua telling him of the raid in Pemaquid. In his journal, Winthrop notes that he agreed to send his bark with 20 men to join with those of Piscataqua to take said pirate, but snow, frost, and contrary winds prevented them. The following May, a ship from Boston sailed for Pemaquid in search of Dixie Bull, but he was never found. Some accounts say he sailed for the East and pledged his allegiance to the French, while others say he made his way back to England, where he was captured and executed. After the disappearance of Dixie Bull, the waters off New England were quiet for almost half a century, though there were pirate attacks on English shipping in other parts of the world. These made the folks here in Boston nervous enough to pass a law specifically banning piracy and making it a capital offense, where Puritan Massachusetts would have previously relied on Mosaic law. In October 1673, the Great General Court of Massachusetts passed the following law. The court, 
Observing the wicked and unrighteous practices of evil men to increase, some piratically seizing of ships with their goods, and others by rising up against their commanders and seizing their vessels and goods at sea, for the prevention whereof, and that due witness may be borne against such bold and notorious transgressions. This court doth order, and be it hereby ordered and enacted, that what person or persons soever shall piratically or feloniously seize any ship or other vessel, whether in the harbor or on the seas, or shall rise up in rebellion against the master, officers, merchant, or owners of any such ship or other sea vessel, every such offender, if found in this jurisdiction, shall be apprehended, and being legally convicted thereof, shall be put to death. However, the first major pirate to be brought to Boston for trial after that law went into effect managed to not only escape execution, but even to go on to a future career as an officer in the Royal Navy. By 1689, Thomas Pound had lived in Boston for three years. He came here as a junior officer on the HMS Rose, serving as a pilot and naval cartographer. The people of Boston rose up against Governor Edmund Andros in April of 1689, which you can hear more about in Episode 6. During the chaos, the captain of the Rose was thrown in jail, and the local militia cut down the ship's topmasts and took her sails to keep her from assisting Andros in any escape attempts. This left Thomas Pound unemployed and bored. On August 8th, Pound and five companions boarded a small ship out of Bull's Wharf in Boston. They paid Captain Thomas Hawkins for passage to Nantasket. Then they said that they'd changed their mind and wanted to do some fishing. As they were anchored near Lovell's Island in Boston Harbor that night, a small boat came up beside the larger vessel. Five armed men rushed aboard, and Pound and his friends also pulled out concealed guns. They took command of the ship, threw the fishing gear overboard, and told Captain Hawkins to set a course for the open ocean, where Pound's men planned to take over the first vessel they could find and sail for the Caribbean to raid French shipping. This must have seemed like a fine plan to Captain Hawkins, because he chose to throw in his lot with the pirates. Together, they hailed the first fishing boat they saw, but seemed to have gotten cold feet. Instead of taking over, they just bought a small store of dried mackerel and some water. Only a few hours later, and still within Massachusetts Bay, they surprised another vessel, a fishing catch. This time, they did take over the catch, without firing a single shot. They moved their men and gear onto the new ship, then turned the fishing crew loose on the original boat, so word quickly reached Boston that there were pirates on the bay. From this point on, Pound commanded the expedition, while Hawkins piloted the ship. They made a course north to Falmouth, Maine, at the site of today's Portland. Somehow, Pound had prearranged a signal, and a corporal and several soldiers deserted from the local fort in the dark of night, to join Pound when he arrived in the harbor, with all the powder and guns they could carry. It seems as though Pound and Hawkins just couldn't wait until they got to the Caribbean to begin their piratical career. With this complement of men in arms, they began attacking ships along the Maine and Massachusetts coast on August 16th, flying a red flag. Upon capturing their next prize on Cape Cod, Pound set the captain free and told him to take a message to Boston, that they knew the government sloop lay ready, but if she came out after them, and came up with them, they should find hot work, for they would die every man before they would be taken. The gauntlet had been cast down, and the great and general court wasted no time sending ships in pursuit. Two vessels cruised in search of the pirates unsuccessfully, while Pound and Hawkins continued to raid the New England coast. 
Finally, in early October, a sloop of war named Mary cornered the pirate crew at Tarpaulin Cove in the Elizabeth Islands off the southern tip of Cape Cod. A brief but desperate fight followed, in which Pound was struck by several musket balls, and the captain of the Mary was killed. Finally, the pirates lowered their blood-red battle flag and were taken prisoner. On January 13, 1690, Pound, Hawkins, and nine others were sentenced to death in Boston. The sentences for all eleven state that they were to be hanged in Boston on January 27th, but Pound and Hawkins were ordered to be taken back to London for their executions. As the ship was in the mid-Atlantic, a French privateer set upon them. In the heat of battle, the British captain released the two prisoners from the brig, asking if they would fight to save the ship. They agreed, and by all accounts fought bravely. Hawkins was killed in the battle, along with about ten of the ship's crew, while Pound made it safely to London. With the endorsement of the ship's captain and the recommendation of former Governor Edmund Andrus, Pound's death sentence was commuted, and he was soon released from prison. He rejoined the Royal Navy, becoming captain of the frigate Sally Rose in August 1690. Just a month after Thomas Pound was captured at Tarpaulin Cove, the Eleanor, a catch that had just sailed from the Caribbean with a cargo of sugar and indigo, was riding at anchor in Boston Harbor. Most of the crew was on shore trying to make arrangements to get the cargo unloaded, while the passengers stayed on board under smallpox quarantine. When the authorities finally agreed to let Captain William Shortriggs bring the ship in as close as Castle Island, he returned to the harbor and was shocked to see that the Eleanor was gone. While he was away, a small boat had come up alongside carrying a man named William Coward and four accomplices. They quickly subdued the sickly passengers and made off with the ship. The next day, they ran the ship aground on Cape Cod and abandoned it. Soon, William Coward and his band were arrested and brought to Boston for their trial. All five were found guilty and sentenced to hang on the same day as Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins. The sentences for the four accomplices were commuted, while William Coward went to the gallows in Boston on January 27, 1690. Why did Coward hang in Boston, while Pound and Hawkins were sent back to London for their executions? I think the answer can be found in the famous story of Captain Kidd. Captain William Kidd is one of the most legendary pirates in history, but his time in Boston is almost a footnote to that storied career. Kidd was a native of Scotland, who moved to New York City as a young man. He lived on Pearl Street in Manhattan, married a wealthy widow, and became a prominent citizen while serving as a privateer against French shipping. At one point, he received a commission from the governor of Massachusetts to pursue a French privateer that had been harassing ships coming in and out of Boston, but he was unsuccessful. While in New York, Captain Kidd became acquainted with Lord Bellamont, who was the royal governor of New York, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts at the time, as the Dominion of New England was slowly dissolving and returning to government by each individual colony. Lord Bellamont had an ambitious proposal for Kidd. English ships sailing from New York and Boston were being preyed on by pirates, not in the waters off New England, but halfway around the world on the Indian Ocean. Lord Bellamont and a group of investors outfitted a fine 34-gun ship for Captain Kidd and arranged for him to get a royal commission to attack pirates, freebooters, and sea rovers of what nature soever. Kidd and his crew would then divide the spoils they took from these pirates between themselves and their wealthy sponsors. Kidd sailed out of New York Harbor on September 5, 1696, 
with orders from Lord Bellamont to serve God in the best manner you can. And after reaching the place and station where you are to put the powers you have in execution, and having effected the same, you are, according to agreement, to sail directly to Boston in New England, there to deliver unto me the whole of what prizes, treasures, merchandise, and other things you shall have taken. I pray God grant you a good success, and send us a good meeting again, concluded the noble Earl. Nearly three years passed with Kidd out on the seas. Rumors began to swirl in Britain and America that Kidd had overreached his letter of mark as a privateer, and was now acting as a pirate himself. Other accounts said that Captain Kidd himself was acting true to his commission, but a group of his men had mutinied and begun acting as pirates. With Kidd off the shore of the Arabian Peninsula and Madagascar, only third and fourth hand accounts reached Boston and New York. Was Captain Kidd the most vicious pirate on the high seas, regularly attacking ships belonging to the British East India Company? Or was he an honorable privateer who preyed on pirates of all nations for the benefit of the British crown? Nobody would know until 1699. In May of that year, Lord Bellamont finally chose to visit Massachusetts after being appointed governor of the province four years earlier. Just weeks after he arrived, a messenger came bearing unexpected news. Captain Kidd was back. His ship was in Delaware Bay, and he was on his way to Boston to uphold his end of the deal. Bellamont offered him clemency, and Captain William Kidd arrived in Boston on July 3, 1699. The governor soon went back on his word, ordering Kidd's arrest for piracy a crime which carried the death penalty. Kidd claimed to have proof that all the ships he had attacked fell within the parameters of his royal commission, but Lord Bellamont would not allow the evidence to be presented. Thus, Kidd was to be shipped back to London to stand trial at an admiralty court. And this explains why some people who were accused of piracy would be tried and executed in Boston, while others were sent to London. A pirate like William Coward could be tried and hanged in Boston, because his crimes were exclusively committed in Massachusetts and the surrounding waters. Someone like Captain Kidd or Thomas Pound attacked ships in international waters and preyed on ships belonging to other countries. Crimes like those had to be tried by the Admiralty Court, which had jurisdiction over all maritime offenses committed on the high seas. In April of 1700, William Kidd was taken back to Boston, where he would be tried and convicted of murder and piracy. On May 23, 1701, he was hanged at Execution Dock. On the first attempt, the rope broke, but the second attempt was successful. After his death, Kidd's body was gibbeted, meaning that it was dipped in tar, wrapped in chains, and then hung up in public as a deterrent to future pirates. He hung over the River Thames for three years. After this drama, the British government made changes that would allow pirates to be hanged without the trouble of bringing them to England. But before we hear about what changed, we should meet Captain Kidd's very interesting cellmate at Boston's Stone Jail. When Kidd was thrown in jail in Boston in 1699, he would soon be joined by another pirate who had been on quite an adventure. Joseph Bradish was born in Cambridge in 1672 to one of the first families of the town. He became a sailor, and at 26 years old, he boarded a ship named Adventure in the port of London for a cruise to Borneo. While most of the crew was ashore on Polonis Island getting water, Bradish and a small group cut the anchor cable and sailed away. 
The crew divided the rich cargo between themselves and elected Bradish captain, as he was the best navigator aboard. In the spring of 1699, they made their way to New England waters. Coming ashore at Block Island, the crew purchased two small sloops and sank the adventure. Sailing along the New England coast, the crew slowly dispersed, one at a farmhouse here, two in a port town there, taking their treasure with them to finance new lives in a new land. Finally, just Bradish and ten men were left in one of their sloops, and they decided that it would be safe to chart a course for Boston Harbor. They were incorrect. The sudden influx of rough sailors with unexplained wealth along the coast had not gone unnoticed, and word had reached Boston of Bradish's pending arrival. Just before their arrival, Lieutenant Governor William Stoughton issued a proclamation on April 1st requiring all justices of the peace, sheriffs, constables, and other officers and subjects to arrest Joseph Bradish and his accomplices, who belonged to the crew of the ship Adventure of London. Of between three and four hundred tons, mounted with twenty-two guns, Thomas Gulick, commander, being on a voyage from London on to Borneo in India in the year of our Lord 1698, and who piratically and feloniously did seize and run away with the ship and her lading, on to Block Island, within His Majesty's colony of Rhode Island, where said Joseph Bradish and his accomplices have sunk the said ship and dispersed themselves into diverse parts and places, such persons to be proceeded against as the law directs, given at the council chamber in Boston, the first day of April, 1699. Soon, Bradish and his crew were guests in Boston's imposing stone jail, a dungeon-like building with three-foot-thick stone walls, iron spikes set in the doors, and iron bars across the glassless windows. The structure was so impenetrable that the door keys themselves were almost 18 inches long. It was not, however, impenetrable enough to hold Joseph Bradish. On the evening of June 24th, just about a week before Captain Kidd's arrival, those iron-spiked doors of the stone jail were left wide open, and Bradish and a one-eyed man named T. Weatherly walked out. The Boston jailer at that time was a man named Caleb Ray, and unbeknownst to anyone, he was Joseph Bradish's uncle. While a reward was offered for the capture of Bradish and Weatherly, charges were brought against Caleb Ray. July 25th, 1699. Advised and ordered that the king's attorney general be and hereby is directed to make inquiry into the escape of Joseph Bradish and T. Weatherly, committed for piracy and to raise a prosecution against Caleb Ray, late keeper of his jail in Boston, for the same. Eventually, a sachem of the Kennebec tribe named Essekamuit sent word to Boston that Bradish and Weatherly had been captured north of Saco, Maine. They were back in Boston by October 26th and joined Captain Kidd in the stone jail where he had arrived while they were on the lam. This time, there was no relative to help them escape. Caleb Ray was found not guilty of helping Bradish escape, which would have been a high misdemeanor, a breach against the peace of our sovereign lord the king, his crown and dignity, and the laws. Bradish was put on the same ship to London as Kidd, and he would eventually be hanged at Hope Dock in London. The British authorities made a guinea pig out of the next member of our rogues' gallery, testing their new method of dealing with pirates that didn't require them to be shipped back to London. 
Jack Quelch had been the lieutenant commander of the Charles, a privateer that sailed out of Marblehead in the summer of 1703, with a letter of mark from Governor Joseph Dudley. Their orders were to ply the waters off the coast of Canada and attack any French or Spanish flag vessels they came across. The crew, however, had a more profitable scheme in mind. Before they even left Massachusetts Bay, they threw the captain overboard and elected Jack Quelch as their new captain. Turning south, the brigantine Charles sailed to the waters off Brazil and hoisted the black flag of piracy. Captain Quelch and his crew captured at least nine Portuguese vessels, many of which were carrying rich cargoes. Before long, the hold of the Charles was full of Brazilian sugar, hides, cloth, guns, gold dust, and coins. While Portugal was not included in their letter of mark, the crew felt that their vast treasure could buy them goodwill back in New England, as long as they were able to keep the murder of their captain secret. In the spring of 1704, Captain Quelch turned the ship towards Massachusetts and home. He made no attempt to disguise himself for the ship, sailing proudly home with a hold full of spoils. Unfortunately, while Quelch and the crew had been at sea, Queen Anne had signed a treaty of alliance with the King of Portugal. Without knowing it, the crew of the Charles had been preying on the ships of a new ally. The brand new Boston newsletter carried a notice of the crew's arrival in Marblehead in May of 1704. Arrived at Marblehead, Captain Quelch and the brigantine that Captain Plowman went out in, and said to come from New Spain and have made a good voyage. What they didn't say is that the crew had just divided up their share of the Charles's loot and hit the town with pockets bulging with gold. They drew a lot of attention, and between their violation of a treaty and their indiscretion on shore, Governor Dudley quickly issued arrest warrants for the crew. By late May, 25 of the original 43 crew members were in custody. There had been a dramatic chase and a showdown when some of the crew got a new ship in Marblehead and headed out to sea again. A company of Essex County militia surprised them on the New Hampshire coast as they were burying a stash of gold, just like a scene from a children's pirate story. The Essex men got the upper hand, and the pirate crew was thrown into Boston's stone jail. On June 13th, the trial began, and this is Captain Quelch's true claim to fame. His was the first admiralty trial to be held outside of England proper. An admiralty trial had many implications. First, it meant that he would be tried under maritime law rather than the law of the province of Massachusetts Bay. And it meant that there would be no jury and no right to representation. Jack Quelch stood before his judges, the governor and lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, the lieutenant governor of New Hampshire, an admiralty judge, a customs collector, and the province secretary. Despite there being no right to representation, an attorney was assigned to help Quelch with his case. He claimed that he had only followed the orders of the governor, but his argument fell on deaf ears. Three members of the crew had agreed to testify against him in return for clemency, and they accused him of murder, piracy, and attacking Allied shipping. Quelch was convicted and sentenced to death, along with six other members of the crew of the Charles. Fifteen threw themselves on the mercy of the court and were sentenced to serve in the Queen's Navy. On June 30, 1704, the condemned men were marched through the streets of Boston. A long, silver oar, symbol of the British Admiralty, led the procession from the stone jail near the site of the old state house to Scarlet's Wharf at the foot of Fleet Street in the North End. 
There the six men mounted the gallows, and all but Quelch expressed words of repentance. The pirate captain, however, still felt that his actions had been justified, and issued a defiant warning. Gentlemen, tis but little I have to speak. What I have to say is this. I desire to be informed for what I have done. I am condemned only upon circumstances. I forgive all the world, so the Lord be merciful to my soul. They should also take care how they bring money into New England to be hanged for it. In the early decades of the 1700s, piracy changed dramatically. Of course, admiralty courts started operating in Boston. But the end of the War of the Spanish Succession also meant that a new generation of pirates took to the seas. These newcomers were less likely to prey on the Spanish Caribbean and more likely to raid the waters of the Carolinas, Virginia, and New England. They had names like Black Sam Bellamy, William Fly, and Blackbeard. We'll meet them in part two of Boston and the Golden Age of Piracy. Next, let's finish our story about Boston and the Golden Age of Piracy. This clip aired as episode 36 last July. Get ready to hear how President Millard Fillmore's great-grandfather decapitated a pirate with an axe. How a pirate helped Ben Franklin make a name for himself as a newspaper publisher. And most of all, the tale of Black Sam Bellamy and the fate of his crew when the Galley Weta sank off Wellfleet in 1717. You'll also learn how pirates threw off the yoke of land-based laws and created radically egalitarian societies at sea. From the beginning of piracy's golden age to the beginning of the 18th century, piracy on the New England coast was the exception rather than the rule. It was much more common for pirate crews to ply the rich Caribbean or the pirate round, which took them from the New England coast to the shores of India and back. That calm came to an end with the close of the War of the Spanish Succession, which had spilled over into North America as Queen Anne's War. When a peace treaty was signed in 1715, a huge glut of British sailors and privateers who had been fighting the Spanish and French suddenly found themselves at loose ends. Many turned to piracy along the Atlantic coast of North America. One of the most notorious pirates of the era was Black Sam Bellamy. Little is known of Bellamy's early life. He was born in Devonshire, England around 1689 and went to sea at the age of 13, perhaps being pressed into service against his will. He served in the Royal Navy during the War of the Spanish Succession, and later tried seeking his fortune on Cape Cod. In 1715, he joined a group of treasure hunters who went looking for Spanish gold along the coast of Florida. Not finding any, Sam Bellamy fell in with a pirate crew led by Benjamin Hornigold and his trusted mate and apprentice, Edward Teach. As his pirate wealth grew, he developed a taste for the finest clothes and dueling pistols, but he never wore the powdered wigs that were fashionable at the time. Instead, he grew his black hair long and tied it back with a black satin bow, which garnered him the nickname Black Sam. After about a year under Hornigold, Black Sam and the crew were frustrated that they were forbidden from attacking ships sailing under the British flag. The crew took a vote, and Hornigold left the ship with his loyal followers, including Edward Teach, who would soon come to be known by his nickname, Blackbeard. The fact that the crew voted on whether to continue under their captain begins to hint at how radically different life was on a pirate vessel at that time from life on a merchant or military vessel. As Peter Linebaugh and Marcus Redeker put it in 2000, 
long before Lin-Manuel put it to music, the early 18th century pirate ship was a world turned upside down. made so by the Articles of Agreement that established the rules and customs of the pirates' social order, hierarchy from below. Pirates distributed justice, elected officers, divided loot equally, and established a different discipline. They limited the authority of the captain, resisted many of the practices of the capitalist merchant shipping industry, and maintained a multicultural, multiracial, multinational social order. They sought to prove that ships did not have to be run in the brutal and oppressive ways of the merchant service and the Royal Navy. The pirate ship was democratic in an undemocratic age. The pirates allowed their captain unquestioned authority in chase and battle, but otherwise insisted that he be governed by a majority. As one observer noted, they permit him to be captain on condition that they may be captain over him. Sam Bellamy and the rest of the pirates we'll meet in this episode live by this code. They were bound to each other by a ship's articles, the contract they would enter into together and they were radically democratic in an age of strict hierarchies. Another author explained the temptation of this life as the radical, doomed sphere of resistance pirates offered to the enormous cruelty of the developing Atlantic economy, grinding exploitation of white sailors in the service of the black slave trade under the iron hand of the British Empire. Bellamy's crew put their faith and their votes in him, and for a while he steered them true. In the spring of 1717, Bellamy was sailing aboard the Marianne in the Windward Passage between Hispaniola and Cuba when he saw what would become one of the most famous pirate ships in history. The Ouida was a newly built slave ship on its mated voyage in the Triangle Trade. Having delivered a cargo of at least 312 enslaved Africans to the plantations in the West Indies, it was now loaded with gold, silver, indigo, ivory, sugar, spices, and other trade goods bound back to Africa. She was a large, fast, heavily armed ship, and Bellamy wanted her from the moment he first saw her. After a three-day chase, the captain of the Ouida surrendered the moment the first shot was fired. Sam Bellamy gave the vanquished captain of the Ouida a sloop in return for the grand vessel, and a quantity of gold to compensate him for his trouble. For acts like this, the crew sometimes referred to Black Sam by another nickname, Robin Hood of the Sea. In seeking a ship captured from another captain, Bellamy let his true feelings about the rich be known. Damn them for a pack of crafty rascals, and you who serve them, for a parcel of hen-hearted numbskulls. They vilify us, the scoundrels do, when there is only this difference— They rob the poor under the cover of law, and we plunder the rich under the protection of our own courage. Now, Sam Bellamy found himself at the helm of one of the finest pirate ships to ply the seas. He had a rich treasure, 28 guns, and a 150-man crew. His original ship, the Marianne, was captained by a trusted lieutenant, and together they rampaged up the east coast of North America. In just over two months, they captured 53 ships, amassing the most valuable pirate booty in English history. As they entered New England waters, the crew of the Marianne voted to steer towards Rhode Island, where some of the members had family. Black Sam and the Ouida continued north around Cape Cod. Unfortunately, they ran straight into a powerful nor'easter. On April 26, 1717, gale-force winds drove the Ouida into a sandbar near Wellfleet. 
The mainmast blew away in the storm, and the powerful surf soon capsized the ship. Four and a half tons of gold went down to the sandy bottom, along with 144 members of the crew. There were at least 60 cannons on board, and as the storm tossed them around the ship, they quickly smashed it to splinters. In the morning, the people of Wellfleet discovered and buried 102 bodies on their beach. They found huge quantities of timbers and other wreckage, but the vast treasure was never recovered. They did find two survivors from the crew, a Welshman named Thomas Davis and a man named John Julian. Julian is sometimes reported to be a Native American from one of the Cape Cod tribes, and sometimes a member of the Mosquito tribes of Central America. The two survivors from the Ouida were imprisoned in Boston, along with seven members of the Marianne's crew who had been captured in Rhode Island. A court found that Bellamy had forced two of the men into piracy, and they were freed. In October of 1717, six of them were tried in an admiralty court in Boston and sentenced to death. To give you an idea of the international flavor aboard a pirate ship, the six who were executed were a Jamaican, two Dutchmen, a Swede, a Frenchman, and a Dutch New Yorker. They were hanged at Charlestown on November 15, 1717. That leaves one survivor. As a Native American, John Julian had few rights under English law. As a result, he didn't stand trial. Instead, the province sold him into slavery. He was purchased by John Quincy, the grandfather of Abigail Smith Adams, and namesake of both John Quincy Adams and the town of Quincy. If you thought that a former bloodthirsty pirate would become a docile slave, you'd be wrong. Quincy reported that he was unruly and sold him to another master. Julian made several attempts to escape, and in one of these he killed a bounty hunter. For the murder of the bounty hunter, John Julian was hanged on March 22, 1733. A week later, the Boston Newsletter reported that his body had been given to medical students for dissection, and that his skeleton would be preserved as a specimen. Thus was the fate of the last survivor of Black Sam Bellamy's pirate crew. Now that we've heard how one president's great-grandfather enslaved a pirate, let's hear how another president's great-grandfather killed one. John Phillips started his seagoing career as a ship's carpenter, until his ship was captured by pirates in 1721. When the pirates learned that he was a skilled carpenter, he was forced into a life of piracy on pain of death, but he soon found that he liked that life. By 1723, Phillips had stolen a schooner and set out with a crew of his own in search of adventure. One of the things that makes Captain Phillips memorable is that we have copies of his articles, the written agreement that his crew agreed to be bound by. It is one of only four sets of articles that survives from the Golden Age of Piracy. Number one, every man shall obey civil command. The captain shall have one full share and a half of all prizes. The master, carpenter, bosun, and gunner shall have one share and a quarter. Number two, if any man shall offer to run away or keep any secret from the company, he shall be marooned with one bottle of powder, one bottle of water, one small arm, and a shot. Number three, if any man shall steal anything in the company or game to the value of a piece of eight, he shall be marooned or shot. Number four, if at any time we shall meet another mariner, that man who shall sign his articles without the consent of our company shall suffer such punishment as the captain and company shall think fit. Number five, that man that shall strike another whilst these articles are in force 
shall receive Moses' law, that is, forty stripes lacking one on the bare back. Number six. That man that shall snap his arms or smoke tobacco in the hold without a cap to his pipe or carry a candle lighted without a lantern shall suffer the same punishment as in the former article. Number seven. That man who shall not keep his arms clean, fit for an engagement, or neglect his business, shall be cut off from his share, and suffer such other punishment as the captain and the company shall think fit. Number eight. If any man shall lose a joint in time of an engagement, he shall have four hundred pieces of eight. If a limb, eight hundred. And lastly, number nine. If at any time you meet with a prudent woman, that man that offers to meddle with her without her consent shall suffer present death. The articles are concerned with fairness, safety, and readiness to fight. But perhaps most surprising is the prohibition against rape. On an earlier voyage, Captain Phillips had witnessed a gang rape and murder that had shocked him to the core, and he would not tolerate a similar crime from his crew. With an agreement in place, Phillips and his crew wandered around the Caribbean, taking what prizes they could find, before heading to the waters off Newfoundland to prey on fishermen. They slowly built the crew with volunteers from the ships they captured, and sometimes with less willing sailors, who were forced into piracy at gunpoint and whipped mercilessly. One such unwilling recruit was John Fillmore of Ipswich. He was captured on a fishing vessel on September 5, 1723. Fillmore was unhappy as a pirate. He asked several times to be set free, even if it meant marooning him on a deserted island. And he even attempted to escape one time, and narrowly avoided being executed by an enraged Captain Phillips. But Fillmore would have the last laugh. The town records of Boston for 1724 record that on the 3rd of May the town was thrown into much surprise by the arrival of an unknown vessel in the harbor, and it was soon found that it had been captured from pirates. A few young men who, having been forced into the service of the dreaded sea rover Captain John Phillips, seizing an opportunity, killed him and his principal men somewhere about the banks of Newfoundland, and sailing hence, succeeded in reaching Boston in safety with their prize, and six of the pirates as prisoners. The crucial moment had come a few weeks earlier, when Phillips drafted some more sailors into his crew against their will. Together with John Fillmore, they planned to win back their freedom. Fillmore and his co-conspirators found an excuse to have some carpentry work half done on the deck, with several tools lying around close at hand. On April 18th, while the leaders of the pirate crew were drinking heavily, the rebels put their plan into effect. Fillmore's own memoir says... The captain and bosun stood by the mainmast, talking upon some matters, and I stood partly behind them, whirling the axe around with my foot, till my knees fairly smote together. The master being busied, I saw a cheeseman make the motion to heave him over, and I at that instant split the bosun's head in twain with the broad axe, and dropped him upon the deck to welter in his gore. Before the captain had time to put himself in a posture of defense, I gave him a stroke with the head of my axe, which partly stunned him at which time Cheeseman, having dispatched the master overboard, came to my assistance, and gave the captain a blow with his hammer on the backside of his head, which put an immediate end to his mortal existence. The quartermaster, hearing the bustle, came running out of the cabin with his hand up to strike Cheeseman with his hammer, and probably would have killed him had not the Indian catched him by his elbow, as he was bringing the hammer down, and there held him, until I came up and gave him a blow on the backside of his head, cutting his wig and neck almost off so that his head hung down before him. 
After Fillmore split the heads of Phillips and another pirate with his axe, he decapitated Phillips and put his head into a pickling jar. With this evidence that they'd been held against their will, the mutineers sailed for Boston and freedom, with the remainder of the pirate crew as their prisoners. The surviving pirates were hanged in Boston on June 2, 1724. John Fillmore would live until 1777, starting a family. Many years later, his great-grandson, Millard Fillmore, would be elected President of the United States. If the cruel shipmaster John Phillips had a reputation for leniency because of the prohibition against rape on his ship, Captain Ned Lowe is remembered as one of the most brutal pirate captains in history. By all accounts, he absolutely reveled in torturing his victims. Edward Lowe was born in London and grew up running wild in the streets. He earned a reputation as a pickpocket and gambler, while his younger brother Richard became a notorious thief. After Richard was hanged in his early teens, Ned decided to seek his fortune in the New World. He headed to New England around 1710, and after a few years settled in Boston. After his wife died in childbirth, Ned abandoned his young daughter and took to the sea. When he felt that the captain of the lumber sloop he was working on had mistreated him, Lowe and a handful of others stole a ship off the coast of Rhode Island, saying that they would go in her, make a black flag, and declare war against all the world. Sailing to the Cayman Islands, the small crew fell in with the pirate captain George Lowther and sailed under him for a few months. Lowe distinguished himself, and after the combined crew captured a brigantine named Rebecca on May 28, 1722, Lowther made Lowe its captain, with a crew of 44. Much like John Phillips, Ned Lowe created a set of articles to govern his ship, and like Phillips, Lowe's articles survive to this day. They're quite similar. Number one. The captain is to have two full shares. The quartermaster is to have one share and a half. The doctor, mate, gunner, and bosun, one share and one quarter. Number two. He that shall be found guilty of taking up any unlawful weapon on board of the privateer or any other prize by us taken, so as to strike or abuse one another in any regard, shall suffer what punishment the captain and the majority of the company shall see fit. Number three. He that shall be found guilty of cowardice in the time of engagement shall suffer what punishment the captain and the majority of the company shall think fit. Number four. If any gold, jewels, silver, etc. be found on board of any prize or prizes to the value of a piece of eight, and the finder do not deliver it to the quartermaster in the space of twenty-four hours, he shall suffer what punishment the captain and the majority of the company shall see fit. Number five. He that is found guilty of gaming or defrauding one another to the value of a royal of plate shall suffer what punishment the captain and the majority of the company shall think fit. Number six. He that shall have the misfortune to lose a limb in the time of engagement shall have the sum of six hundred pieces of eight, and remain aboard as long as he shall think fit. Number seven. Good quarters to be given when craved. Number eight. He that sees a sail first shall have the best pistol or small arm aboard her. Number nine, he that shall be guilty of drunkenness in time of engagement shall suffer what punishment the captain and majority of the company shall think fit. Number ten, no snapping of guns in the hold. 
Over the next year, Lowe and his crew divided their time between the rich shipping lanes in the Caribbean and the rich fishing grounds of the Grand Banks. They captured over a hundred vessels, trading up from one ship to the next, and slowly building a pirate fleet. It was during this period that Ned Lowe earned his reputation for extreme cruelty. Despite his self-imposed rule to offer a prisoner quarter, that is, to accept surrender instead of death, anyone who refused to comply with the captain was fair game. In one early engagement, a news account of the time said that on Lowe's orders the crew cut and whipped some, and others they burnt with matches between their fingers to the bone to make them confess where their money was. He only became more extreme over time. The general history of the pirates says that after taking two whaleboats near Rhode Island, he caused one of the master's bodies to be ripped up and his entrails to be taken out and cut off the ears of the other and made him eat them himself with pepper and salt. Upon hearing that a Portuguese captain had thrown his gold into the sea rather than handing it over, Lowe ordered the captain's lips to be cut off, which he broiled before his face, and afterwards murdered him and all the crew, being 32 persons. It was after the capture and torture near Rhode Island that Ned Lowe came to the attention of the authorities in Boston, who prepared to send a squadron out to pursue him. The New England Courant, a Boston newspaper published by James Franklin, reported on the developments in the June 11, 1722 edition. On Monday morning last, his honor the governor had advice by a whaleboat from Block Island that there was at that island a pirate brigantine. Whereupon, the drums were ordered immediately to beat about town for volunteers to go in quest of the pirates, and by three of the clock the same day, there were two large sloops under sail, equipped and manned. We are advised from Boston that the government of Massachusetts are fitting out a ship to go after the pirates, to be commanded by Governor Peter Papillion, and tis thought he will sail sometime this month if wind and weather permit. The above pirate brigantine is commanded by one Lowell, who lately belonged to Boston. The brigantine the pirates are now in belonged to Boston, and was bound there from St. Christopher's, when she was taken by a pirate sloop of about ten guns and ninety men. Seems like an innocent enough reporting of the news, right? Well, the provincial authorities didn't think so. They thought that the paragraph about the provincial government outfitting a ship made it sound as though they didn't take the pirate threat seriously. The Massachusetts House of Representatives passed a resolve against the Courant and James Franklin the next week. The board having had consideration of a paragraph in a paper called the New England Courant, published Monday last, relating to the fitting out of a ship here to proceed against the pirates, and having examined James Franklin Printer, he acknowledged himself to be publisher thereof. In finding the paragraph to be grounded on a letter pretended by him to be received from Rhode Island, resolved that the said paragraph is a high affront to this government. Resolved that the sheriff of the county of Suffolk do forthwith commit to the jail in Boston the body of James Franklin Printer, for the gross affront offered to this government in his Courant of Monday last, there to remain during this session. With that, James Franklin was thrown into prison and day-to-day management of the newspaper was turned over to his apprentice and younger brother, Ben. In his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin recalled how he got his start in newspaper publishing, the profession that would eventually bring him to national prominence, indirectly through Ned Lowe's piracy. One of the pieces in our newspaper on some political point, which I have now forgotten, gave offense to the assembly. James was taken up, censured, and imprisoned for a month by the Speaker's warrant. I, too, was taken up and examined before the council, but though I did not give them any satisfaction, 
they contented themselves with admonishing me, and dismissed me, considering me perhaps as an apprentice who was bound to keep his master's secrets. During my brother's confinement, which I resented a good deal, notwithstanding our private differences, I had the management of the paper, and I made bold to give our rulers some rubs in it, which my brother took very kindly, while others began to consider me in an unfavorable light, as a young genius that had a turn for libeling and satire. My brother's discharge was accompanied with an order of the house, a very odd one, that James Franklin should no longer print the paper called the New England Courant. There was a consultation held in our printing house among his friends what he should do in this case. Some proposed to evade the order by changing the name of the paper, but my brother seeing inconveniences in that, it was finally concluded on as a better way to let it be printed for the future under the name of Benjamin Franklin. The cruise against Ned Lowe out of Boston Harbor eventually involved a hundred sailors, and they chased Lowe along the coast of Nova Scotia, but never caught him. Nevertheless, the pirate captain's luck had turned. After a series of unsuccessful engagements with the Royal Navy, Lowe's fleet began to dwindle. In late 1723, his flagship, Merry Christmas, found itself alone. In heading for Brazil, it sailed straight out of the history books. Ned Lowe was never heard from again. Some accounts say that his ship sank in a storm, while others say that he was marooned by his crew or even hanged by the French. The last great pirate of the Golden Age enjoyed a meteoric rise and fall in a piratical career that spanned just one month. An experienced seaman named William Fly enlisted as a bosun on a ship named the Elizabeth in Jamaica in the spring of 1726. But early in the cruise, he and the crew became resentful of their bad usage at the hands of the captain. In the wee hours of the night on May 27th, the crew mutinied, dragging the captain and first mates from their beds and throwing them into the sea to drown. When the captain grabbed onto the mainsail to try and save himself, the ship's cooper took an axe and chopped the offending hand off. The crew renamed the ship Fame's Revenge, elected William Fly captain, and began sailing up the east coast of North America. They stitched together a Jolly Roger and tried to emulate the amazing blitz up the east coast that Black Sam Bellamy had enjoyed. However, where Bellamy had captured 53 ships by the time he made it to New England waters, Fly and Fame's Revenge only managed to take five ships. The first two he had captured off the coast of North Carolina, burning one of them and convincing several sailors to join his crew. For some reason, he took some likely seaman prisoner when they refused to sign his articles and join the crew, including William Atkinson, who was forced to act as Fly's pilot. Next, they attacked a ship near Virginia, but it turned out to be full of Scots-Irish immigrants bound for Pennsylvania, rather than the rich treasure that they had hoped for. Moving into New England waters, they looted a whaler off Newfoundland and sailed for the fishing fleet around Brown's Bank, east of Cape Ann. On June 29th, Fly's crew attacked the James, the first fishing vessel they encountered. Then they divided their forces as more fishing boats came into view. The plan was to leave a skeleton crew on Fame's Revenge to attack the fleet head-on, while the rest of the pirates boarded the captured James and attempted to flank the fleet. However, this movement that Captain Fly and his pirates on the Fame's Revenge were now outnumbered by the forced men aboard, those who had been forced into service. While Captain Fly was distracted by the prospect of fresh captures, the unwilling pilot, William Atkinson, led a party of mutineers in stealing cutlasses and a brace of pistols from the pirate armory. 
Then they rushed Fly and his pirates, holding them at gunpoint and throwing them in irons just 33 days after they had turned pirate in the first place. With Atkinson at the helm, Bame's revenge made good time in their voyage to Boston. On July 4, 1726, an admiralty court met in Boston to sort out the fate of William Fly and his men. Atkinson and the mutineers were quickly cleared of all charges. A young cook was granted a pardon. Captain Fly and three of his crew were sentenced to hang. On July 12th, thousands of people gathered on Copse Hill in the North End to watch the four pirates meet their fate. When it was William Fly's turn to mount the gallows, he trotted swiftly up the stairs, carrying a nosegay of sweet-smelling flowers, and he smiled and waved at the crowds. Suddenly, Fly's smile turned to a frown as he saw the sloppy noose the novice executioner had tied. He rebuked the man for not understanding his trade. Taking the rope, Fly, with his own hands, rectified matters to render things more convenient and effectual. Having tied the noose with a sailor's confidence in knots, he placed the rope around his own neck. Asked for his last words, Fly chose to use his last breaths to issue a warning. Addressing the port city crowd thick with ship captains and sailors, he proclaimed his final, fondest wish that all masters of vessels might take warning by the fate of the captain that he had murdered, and to pay sailors their wages when due, and to treat them better, saying that their barbarity to them made so many turn pirates. Pirate historian Marcus Redeker argues that the death of William Fly marked the end of the Golden Age of Piracy. From the end of the War of the Spanish Succession to this point, there had been a shared set of traditions and practices among pirates, passed down in an unbroken chain through a succession of crews. By splintering, by sailing in consorts, or by other associations, roughly 3,600 pirates, about 90% of all those active between 1716 and 1726, fitted into two main lines of genealogical descent. Captain Benjamin Hornigold and the pirate rendezvous in the Bahamas stood at the origin of an intricate lineage that ended with the hanging of John Phillips' crew in June of 1724. The second line spawned in the chance meeting of the lately mutinous crews of George Lothar and Edward Lowe in 1722, culminated in the executions of William Fly and his men in July 1726. It was primarily within and through this network that the social organization of the pirate ship took on its significance, transmitting and preserving customs and meanings, and helping to structure and perpetuate the pirate's social world. William Fly's death may have meant the end of the Golden Age, but it didn't yet mean the end of Captain Fly. The next edition of the Boston Newsletter reports that their bodies were carried in a boat to a small island called Nix's Mate, about two leagues from the town, where the above-said fly was hung up in irons as a spectacle for the warning of others, especially seafaring men. The other two were buried there. Thus, Fly was gibbeted, suffering the same fate on Boston Harbor that Captain Kidd suffered in London. After his death, Fly's body was wrapped in chains and displayed as a warning to any future sailors who might consider turning pirate. Nix's mate was a tiny island that lay right on the main shipping channel in Boston Harbor, so any seaman heading into or out of the Port of Boston would have a chance to heed this warning. Today, Nix's mate is one of Boston's lost harbor islands. At high tide, all that's visible is a black-and-white banded pyramid of granite, and at low tide, just a gravel bar. Nonetheless, the longtime historian of Boston Harbor, Edward Rose Snow, would later claim to have discovered Fly's gibbet. 
200 years later, I went ashore on the bar which surrounds the granite wall and pyramid now known as Nix's Mate, and carefully explored the shifting sands, rocks, and silt, which comprises part of what is left of the pirate island. After several days of searching and digging, I located what probably was the spot where Fly was gibbeted, for a fragment of the iron band and several links of chain were uncovered. This was all that could be found which recalled in any way the nefarious and villainous Captain William Fly. Fun fact. Since that last story aired, there's been breaking news about Black Sam Bellamy and the Weeda. I think this is the first time we've had breaking news on our history podcast. In February of this year, archaeologists working at the Weeda Pirate Museum, our featured historic site this week, announced that they had made a new discovery. Late last year, scientists were examining a 3,600-pound concretion, a huge lump of sand, debris, and artifacts that had fused together into one stone-like slab, when they noticed what appeared to be a human bone sticking out. During a February press conference, the bone was extracted and confirmed to be a human femur. It was found close to Bellamy's personally engraved pistol, suggesting to researchers that it might have belonged to Black Sam himself. The bone will be cleaned, and DNA will be extracted for comparison to Bellamy's closest living relatives. If his identity is confirmed, Black Sam's remains will be returned to England for burial. Okay, the last of our stories this week approaches piracy from a different angle. Rather than looking at history through the eyes of the pirates and their victims, this story takes the perspective of Cotton Mather, the Puritan minister who presided over countless pirate executions. Mather thought it his duty to ensure that condemned pirates made penitent confessions for the sake of their own souls and for the greater good of Boston society. He wrote famous execution sermons for some of these pirates. Coming up, we'll hear about Cotton Mather's ministry to pirates, as well as the one pirate captain who refused to repent. From our 21st century vantage, we view Puritan Massachusetts in the 1600s and even the early 1700s as a society with strict laws and almost unimaginably strict consequences. We read the Scarlet Letter, we hear about the harsh punishments meted out to Quakers, and about the series of terrifying executions during the Salem Witch Hysteria, and we picture a land where you could be whipped or branded or even put to death for next to nothing. As we'll see, the real Massachusetts Bay Colony was a place where the laws were both more strict and more lenient than you'd think. Yes, it was a theocracy, where the accumulated body of English common law tended to take a backseat to harsh biblical punishments lifted straight from Leviticus. But it was also a place where the full measure of the law was rarely applied. Writing in the William and Mary Quarterly, Jules Zanger describes what we might think of as the practical leniency of Puritan law. The English criminal code developed under the necessity of controlling and intimidating a large landless and jobless population was, by the 17th century, extremely harsh and oppressive. The New England magistrate found many of the severe elements in English law, well-suited as they might have been for controlling great numbers of hungry and dangerous men without work, exceedingly ill-suited to conditions in the Bay Colony. Much of the essay then focuses on instances of remission, which you can think of as a sort of suspended sentence of the 1600s. For a fine, admit that the offender paid either a lower amount than the fine the courts had imposed, or perhaps nothing at all, as long as they did not commit another crime. The general court's extensive use of remission was to an important degree its response to pressures generated by the shortage of labor and money in the colony. 
This acute shortage of labor was intensified by the constant need for men to protect the settlements from the Indians. And with that dated language, keep in mind that it was written in 1965. So even though the court might impose a harsh punishment for some seemingly minor crime, the offender probably wouldn't see the full measure of that sentence. In a society where there was a critical shortage of laborers and soldiers, it made no sense at all to imprison a convicted criminal for a long period of time. Instead, an offender might be forced into indentured servitude. For offenses which were serious enough to seem to demand imprisonment, one solution was to commit the offender to some degree of private bondage rather than to give him a jail term. That same labor shortage drove judges to curtail the death penalty and to limit corporal punishment to sentences that wouldn't permanently prevent someone from working and pulling their own weight in the colony. Because of this man shortage, the magistrates of the Bay Colony were reluctant to impose punishments which would permanently, or even for long, deprive the colony of a man's labor or his services as a guard. Even when the court gave sentences imposing harsh penalties, it showed a marked preference for those penalties which could easily be remitted. Hangings were comparatively few. No one was hanged for a crime against property. New England courts never sentenced offenders to limb amputations. In nearly all cases, corporal punishment meant whipping, and, even then, fewer strokes were given than was customary in England. This dichotomy between the strict sentences imposed by the courts and the lesser punishments accepted by local magistrates also extended to fines. There just wasn't enough cash money in the Massachusetts Bay Colony to allow every fine to be paid in full. Further complicating the problem of enforcing penalties was the extreme shortage of money in the colony. At various times during the first 10 years of settlement, corn, beaver, musket ball, and wampum were declared legal tender. It was against the law to sell or trade gold or silver money to the Indians, or even to carry it out of the colony and back into England. More than half of all the offenses in the record of the general court between 1630 and 1641 were punished by fines. More than half of those were remitted. With money in such short supply, the most repentant debtor must often have found it difficult to pay even a small fine, and the court, mindful of the shortage of labor, was clearly not prepared to sentence a man to idleness in prison for failure to pay a fine. So what were the capital offenses in early Massachusetts? Even if the death penalty was rarely imposed, there were 12 capital crimes from the earliest days of the colony. In 1641, the Great and General Court of Massachusetts established the first written laws to go into effect in New England, known as the Body of Liberties. It defined the individual rights of a freeman of the colony, of women, children, the enslaved, foreigners, and even brute creatures. That's right, the 1641 Body of Liberties made it illegal to exercise any tyranny or cruelty towards any brute creature which are usually kept for man's use, as well as to smite out the eye or tooth of his manservant or maidservant or otherwise maim or much disfigure him. In this prototypical legal system, there were 12 capital crimes, each of which was accompanied by the scriptural justification for imposing death upon an offender. First up, are the crimes of religion. Number one, if any man, after legal conviction, shall have or worship any other god but the Lord God, 
he shall be put to death. Number two. If any man or woman be a witch, that is, hath or consulteth with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. Number three. If any person shall blaspheme the name of God, the Father, the Son, or Holy Ghost, with direct, express, presumptuous, or high-handed blasphemy, or shall curse God in the like manner, he shall be put to death. Then come the crimes related to killing. Number four. If any person commit any willful murder, which is manslaughter, committed upon premeditated malice, hatred, or cruelty, not in a man's necessary and just defense, nor by mere casualties against his will, he shall be put to death. Number five. If any person slayeth another suddenly in his anger or cruelty of passion, he shall be put to death. Number six. If any person shall slay another through guile, either by poisoning or other such devilish practice, he shall be put to death. Next up are the sex crimes. How exciting. Number seven. If any man or woman shall lie with any beast or brute creature by carnal copulation, they shall surely be put to death, and the beasts shall be slain and buried and not eaten. Number eight. If any man lieth with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed abomination, and they both shall surely be put to death. Number nine. If any person committeth adultery with a married or espoused wife, the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. The last three get a little bit complicated. Number ten. If any man stealeth a man or mankind, he shall surely be put to death. That sounds as though it makes slavery a capital crime, though there were enslaved Africans in Massachusetts by that time, and there would continue to be for over a century. Number 11. If any man rise up by false witness, wittingly and of purpose take away any man's life, he shall be put to death. Now this isn't just about lying, but perjury that results in someone's life being taken away probably in a capital case before the courts. Lastly, number 12. If any man shall conspire and attempt any invasion, insurrection, or public rebellion against our commonwealth, or shall endeavor to surprise any town or towns, fort or forts therein, or shall treacherously and perfidiously attempt the alteration and subversion of our frame of polity or government fundamentally, he shall be put to death. Finally, a good old prohibition on treason. Under the earliest capital code, everything from murder and poisoning, to adultery and homosexuality, to idolatry and witchcraft could be punishable by death. While execution was rare in the first decades of the colony, when the English population of Massachusetts Bay was holding on by the skin of their teeth, it did happen, and it became increasingly frequent over the years. By the time Cotton Mather was in his prime, nearly a century after the colony was founded, executions were no longer rare at all. All executions at the time were performed publicly, and they quickly became common enough to spark a new type of Puritan sermon. By Cotton Mather's time, the execution sermon was a well-known genre. Writing in 2015 about the impending death sentence for Jokar Tsarnaev, Agnes Howard described the defining aspects of a Puritan execution sermon. 
A genre distinctive, if not unique, to New England Puritans, the execution sermon occupied an important role in the administration of justice in colonial Massachusetts well into the 19th century. The rhetorical form acknowledged that punishment had a moral meaning that the state by itself could not explain. Like many other places in the 17th and 18th centuries, public execution was a fact of life here, and thousands might come out to watch. Thus, in church before or after the actual execution, it was the task of a leading minister to assess the misdeeds of the convict, to connect his punishment somehow to the purpose and trajectory of the larger community, and to protect the event from veering into mere vengeance or rowdy spectacle, affirming the duty of civil government to assign punishment and the responsibility of the community to uphold standards of right. Execution sermons, importantly, reminded audiences that they and the convict alike were stained with sin. Criminals were not merely monsters, but in ways resembled others in the community who, but for the restraining grace of God, could also fall to wickedness. An execution sermon would usually be preached at the meeting house on the Sabbath, with the condemned in attendance, perhaps again privately in an audience with the condemned, and then it would be printed and circulated beyond the immediate parish where the execution took place. As we'll see in a few minutes, you didn't even need to be the minister to the condemned to publish an execution sermon. Cotton Mather would do so for executions that took place as far away as Newport, Rhode Island. The first execution sermon in Massachusetts came with the last known execution in North America for bestiality. A young man named Benjamin Gould, or possibly Gord or Goad, as the spelling back then was erratic, was sent to the gallows in Roxbury in April of 1674. Samuel Sewell's diary records that Gould was about 17 years old and had committed filthiness in the noonday in an open yard with a mare. In keeping with the seventh capital crime in the Body of Liberties, the mare was first killed before young Gould mounted the scaffold himself. In response to this terrible deed, the Reverend Samuel Danforth published a sermon running to about 25 pages entitled, the cry of Sodom inquired into, which is considered the earliest surviving New England execution sermon. Danforth set the stage for all the execution sermons that would follow. His sermon outlines the scriptural justification for the execution, calls for the condemned man to repent, and warns those who are listening that the wider society must be reformed to avoid a similar fate. In it, he ticks off the crimes of Sodom and Gomorrah, including masturbation, incest, prostitution, fornication, adultery, and, of course, bestiality, describing the scriptural prohibition against each. He explains that a death sentence is necessary, even for such a young offender, in order to preserve the church and their fledgling society on the edge of the wilderness. This, his sin, is exceedingly grievous in the sight of God. It is an abomination. It is confusion. It defiles the land. The earth groans under the burden of such wickedness. You pity his youth and tender years, but I pray, pity the holy law of God, which is shamefully violated. Pity the glorious name of God, which is horribly profaned. Pity the land, which is fearfully polluted and defiled. And he warns that young Gould's execution is the only way that they will be able to avoid God's wrath themselves. 
if we will not pronounce such a villain accursed, we must be content to bear the curse ourselves. The land cannot be cleansed until it hath spewed out this unclean beast. The execution of justice upon such a notorious malefactor is the only way to turn away the wrath of God from us and to consecrate ourselves to the Lord and obtain his blessing upon us. At the time of that first execution sermon, Cotton Mather was barely a tween, but his father Increase was well established as the minister of the North Church in Boston. The following year, Increase delivered his own execution sermon for two indentured servants who were convicted of killing their master with an axe. When it was set in type on John Foster's press, the sermon titled The Wicked Man's Portion became the first book to be printed entirely in the town of Boston. It was popular enough that new editions were still being printed a decade later, when Cotton Mather was all grown up and execution sermons were becoming a family affair. In the spring of 1686, James Morgan was convicted of murder. On Sunday, March 7th, he was taken to the Second Church, where Cotton Mather, then about 23 years old, preached a sermon against his crimes. And now let the everlasting Savior look down in much mercy on you. Oh, that he would give this murderer an extraordinary sinner a place among the wonders of free grace. For the Thursday meeting on March 11th, Morgan was taken back to Second Church, where Increase Mather preached another sermon over him. In his biography of Increase, Michael Hall says, He was at the height of his powers as an orator, and his audience surely numbered several thousand in the multi-tiered meeting house. Starting calmly, Mather moved relentlessly toward an emotional climax in which he turned to the condemned man, rehearsed his confession, pleaded with him to believe in Christ, and assured him that if his repentance were sincere, on the very moment of his death, his soul would be transported to the right side of God, his sins forgiven, and his eternal life in heaven assured. I cannot forgive you, Mather told the prisoner before him. Only Christ can judge your sincerity. When he was done, James Morgan was taken to the place of execution. The young Cotton Mather walked beside him, holding one final discourse with the condemned man as he was led to the gallows. Mather said, I'm come hither to answer your desires, which just now you expressed to me in the church, that I would give you my company at your execution. Morgan replied, I beseech you, sir, speak to me. Do me all the good you can. My time grows very short. Your discourse fits me for my death more than anything. After a short conversation, Mather took his leave, saying, Farewell, poor heart. Fare thee well. The everlasting arms receive thee. Morgan's last words were recorded as, Here I am, and know not what will become of my poor soul, which is within a few moments of eternity. I that have murdered a poor man, who had but little time to repent, and I know not what's become of his poor soul. Oh, that I may make use of this opportunity that I have. Oh, that I may make improvement of this little, little time before I go hence and be no more. Oh, let all my mind what I am saying now. I am a-going out of this world. Oh, take warning by me, and beg of God to keep you from this sin which has been my ruin. O Lord, receive my spirit. I come unto thee, O Lord. I come unto thee, O Lord. I come unto thee. I come, I come. And with that, he was turned off the ladder to die.
The sermons of both Mathers were published in a single volume. The one by Increase was titled, A Sermon Occasioned by the Execution of a Man Found Guilty of Murder, and it was followed by Cotton's contribution under the title, The Call of the Gospel Applied. The final discourse with Morgan was taken from Cotton's diaries, and it was only publicly printed in later editions of the pamphlet. Cotton Mather seems to have really gotten a taste for the form of the execution sermon. Over the next 40 years, from 1686 to 1726, while Cotton was at the height of his influence in New England, some 20 volumes of execution sermons were published. Cotton Mather's words appeared in over half of them. While Cotton Mather would minister to sinners who were condemned to die for any number of offenses, his favorites seemed to be infanticide and piracy. He published at least three sermons on infanticide, and one called Pillars of Salt is remembered because it contained case studies on a dozen earlier New England cases that ended in execution. Sarah Threeneedles had been tried and convicted in Samuel Sewell's court of murdering her baseborn child. Early in the morning of September 26, 1698, Sarah felt the pangs of labor in the birth of her second illegitimate child. She got up, went to a nearby pasture, and delivered a baby boy. Then she simply walked away and left the infant to die of exposure. During her October trial, she identified the father as a local shopkeeper and pleaded that if he had lent her any support at all, it had not come to this. The court was unmoved, the father went unpunished, and Sarah was sentenced to die. Samuel Sewell recorded the final hours of Sarah's life. November 17th. Very fair, serene weather. Mr. Cotton Mather preaches at the South Meeting House. Sarah Threeneedles, as an auditor, is a very vast assembly in the street full of such as could not get in. After lecture, Sarah Threeneedles is executed. Mr. Woodbridge went to the place of execution and prayed with her there. When Cotton Mather published Pillars of Salt, it included not only the sermon he had preached on Sarah Threeneedles' execution day, giving the scriptural justification for the death that had been ordered by the court, but also full case histories of 12 earlier capital cases. This created what one writer calls the first cumulative digest of domestic capital crimes to appear in New England. If piracy was Cotton Mather's other favorite topic for an execution sermon, he was lucky that his prime years aligned with the golden age of piracy. Back in July, we did a two-part special on Boston in the golden age of piracy. And if you've never heard them, Go back and look up episodes 34 and 36, and you'll hear a wealth of tales about the salty sea rovers who terrorized the coast of New England during this period. The Golden Age is considered to stretch roughly from 1650 to 1726, with the early period consisting mostly of English pirates preying on Spanish treasure vessels in the Caribbean. A middle period where pirate crews plied the pirate round sailing from their bases in North America to the Indian Ocean to rob trading vessels, and a later period where English and American naval crews were left unemployed after the end of the War of the Spanish Succession and turned to piracy along the American coast to make their fortunes. Following raids in 1632 by a daring pirate named Dixie Bull who had previously been a Boston resident, the New England coast was mostly free from pirates until the 1680s. However, news of the dangers faced by British shipping in faraway waters was enough to convince the Massachusetts legislature to specifically ban piracy with a law passed in 1674. 
The court, observing the wicked and unrighteous practices of evil men to increase, some piratically seizing of ships with their goods, and others by rising up against their commanders and seizing their vessels and goods at sea, for the prevention whereof, and that due witness may be borne against such bold and notorious transgressions, this court doth order, and be it hereby ordered and enacted, that what person or persons soever shall piratically or feloniously seize any ship or other vessel, whither in the harbor or on the seas, or shall rise up in rebellion against the master, officers, merchant, or owners of any such ship or other sea vessel, every such offender, if found in this jurisdiction, shall be apprehended, and, being legally convicted thereof, shall be put to death. Piracy was already banned by English law and subject to trial in an admiralty court, but this law allowed pirates who were caught locally to be tried and executed locally. This mattered to Boston's Puritan forebears. It mattered a lot. People like Cotton Mather considered piracy to be an especially heinous crime. It was, by definition, a crime against property, and it very frequently involved murder, which was already a capital crime. But the reason piracy was seen as so bad, and the reason it was deserving of its own set of laws, was its effect on the established social order. Early Massachusetts was a rigidly hierarchical society. The Puritans believed strongly in predestination, that one's place in society was determined by God before birth. Some people were elected, or chosen by God to be saved, while everyone else was fallen. The family had a father who was expected to instruct the family and make decisions, and then a mother, and then children, and then perhaps servants or slaves. The church had a minister, with the elders below him, then church members. A town would have wealthy merchants, then yeoman farmers and freemen, then foreigners, non-church members, servants, enslaved people, and Native Americans. Your place in this pyramid was predestined, so it was sinful to try to rise above your station. And since it was sinful, it was also illegal, with laws preventing people of lower classes from wearing clothes that should belong to a higher class, or otherwise putting on airs. It's no wonder that the leaders of this rigidly class-bound society felt threatened by pirates. A pirate ship during the Golden Age was radically democratic and egalitarian. By committing mutiny or seizing a ship, pirates had already condemned themselves to death if captured, so they lived outside the law and outside the normal strictures of society, free to create their own societies. Crews selected their own captains and officers by vote, lived according to a shared set of rules that they voted in, and were always free to leave if they felt their captain had mistreated them. Historian Marcus Redeker describes what life was like on a pirate ship at that time. The early 18th century pirate ship was a world turned upside down, made so by the Articles of Agreement that established the rules and customs of the pirate social order, hierarchy from below. Pirates distributed justice, elected officers, divided loot equally, and established a different discipline. They limited the authority of the captain, resisted many of the practices of the capitalist merchant shipping industry, and maintained a multicultural, multiracial, multinational social order. They sought to prove that ships did not have to be run in the brutal and oppressive ways of the merchant service and the Royal Navy. The pirate ship was democratic in an undemocratic age. The pirates allowed their captain unquestioned authority in chase and battle, 
but otherwise insisted that he be governed by a majority. As one observer noted, they permit him to be captain on condition that they may be captain over him. In 1689, two pirate crews were in the Boston jail awaiting their date with the executioner. The crew, led by Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins, had stolen a ship that was anchored in Boston Harbor near Lovell's Island and gone raiding along the Massachusetts and Maine coast before being cornered by provincial ships and captured in a bloody battle. William Coward's crew had also stolen a small ship that was anchored in Boston Harbor, but ran it aground on Cape Cod and got arrested before they could capture any treasure. The diary of Samuel Sewell reveals that he and Cotton Mather both visited and prayed with the pirate prisoners on January 17, 1690. Went after dinner to the townhouse to Mr. Addington, from thence to Mr. Browning's, from thence with Cotton Mather to the prisoners who were condemned on Friday. Spoke to and prayed with Pounds and others, then with Coward, Johnson and others. For what appear to be political reasons, all death sentences were commuted except one, so there would be no mass execution for Cotton Mather to publish a sermon on. In 1704, Mather would finally get the mass execution of pirates that he had been dreaming of. Jack Quelch and his crew were the first pirates to be tried by an admiralty court in Boston instead of being tried in the provincial court or shipped back to London. He had been the lieutenant commander of the brigantine Charles, a privateer vessel that sailed out of Marblehead in the summer of 1703 with a letter from Governor Joseph Dudley authorizing them to attack French or Spanish flag vessels. The crew had a more profitable scheme in mind, though. Before they even left Massachusetts Bay, they threw Captain Plowman overboard and elected Jack Quelch as their new captain. Turning south, Quelch and the Charles sailed to Brazil and captured at least nine Portuguese vessels, many of which were carrying rich cargoes. Before long, the hold of the Charles was full of Brazilian sugar, cloth, guns, and gold. In the spring of 1704, Captain Quelch turned the ship toward Massachusetts, confident that his hold full of spoils would buy him goodwill with the provincial authorities. Unfortunately, while Quelch and the crew had been at sea, Queen Anne had signed a treaty of alliance with the King of Portugal. Without knowing it, the crew of the Charles had been preying on the ships of a new ally. Upon their arrival, 43 members of the crew were quickly arrested in Marblehead and brought to Boston to stand trial. Seven were sentenced to death, and one had his sentence commuted at the last moment. As always, Samuel Sewell's diary tells us that Cotton Mather was on hand to tend to the pirate's souls. In the morning, I heard Mr. Cotton Mather pray, preach, catechize excellently the condemned prisoners in the chamber of the prison. Mather's sermon would later be published under the title, Faithful Warnings to Prevent Fearful Judgment. It follows the typical structure, justifying the death sentence, demanding repentance from the condemned, and warning the audience against sin. As he really settles into the groove, Cotton warns not only against piracy, but also against the legal practice of privateering as leading sailors down the primrose path. I remember that not very long ago I had occasion to preach a sermon at the prison upon those words from Jeremiah, He that get riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end he shall be a fool. A great number of the sinners then present had that combination of God soon executed upon them at the gallows. 
Oh, the displeasure of God, that now a greater number of such sinners have arisen and arrived among us. Will our merciful God at last sanctify these displays of vengeance? That never any more of them that see or hear these things may, after this, go to get riches and not by right. Let all people hear and fear, and never do thus wickedly any more. Yea, since the privateering stroke so easily degenerates into the piratical, and the privateering trade is usually carried on with so unchristian a temper, and proves an outlet unto so much debauchery and iniquity and confusion, I believe I shall have good men concur with me in wishing that privateering may no more be practiced. Mather's sermon concludes with what we now recognize as his typical warning both to potential pirates and to the wider society in Massachusetts on the dangers of becoming a pirate or harboring piracy. To conclude, it may justly be expected that we shall all endeavor to improve what we behold of evil pursuing sinners in the surprising instances which by the providence of God are newly fallen out among ourselves. There has been a time when some have come and seduced and enchanted several of our young men to piratical courses, and there were some unhappy advantages which the sinners took to shelter themselves in the prosecution of their piracies. But the government of New England will, by a severe procedure of justice, forever make it an unjust thing to reflect on the country, as if such dangerous criminals might hope ever to be safely nested here. The condemned were paraded through town in a procession led by the silver oar representing the admiralty, surrounded by forty musketeers, the constables of the town, and a provost-marshal. When they reached Scarlet Wharf, Mather accompanied them in a boat that took them around the north end into the mouth of the Charles River. The gallows had been erected on the mudflats just off the foot of Copps Hill, where the people of the town would have the best view. Samuel Sewell's diary records what a morbid spectacle a mass hanging of pirates could become. But when I came to see how the river was covered with people, I was amazed. Some say there were 100 boats. 150 boats and canoes, saith Cousin Moody. When the scaffold was hoisted to a due height, the seven malefactors went up. Mr. Mather prayed to them, standing upon the boat. Ropes were fastened to the gallows. When the scaffold was let to sink, there was such a screech of the women that my wife heard it sitting in our entry next to the orchard and was much surprised at it. Yet the wind was southwest. Our house is a full mile from the place. In An Account of the Behavior and Last Dying Speeches of the Six Pirates, Mather recorded the behavior of Jack Quelch upon arriving at the gallows. Captain Jack Quelch, when on the stage, first he pulled off his hat and bowed to the spectators, and not concerned, nor behaving himself so much like a dying man as some would have done. Until the end, Quelch maintained his innocence. He claimed that all his prizes were taken legitimately under the mark of a privateer, and as such, his only crime was to bring a cargo of gold into Massachusetts waters and not share it with the authorities. His last words walk a fine line between penitence and defiance. Gentlemen, tis but little I have to speak. What I have to say is this. I desire to be informed for what I have done. I am condemned only upon circumstances. I forgive all the world, so the Lord may be merciful to my soul. They should also take care how they bring money into New England to be hanged for it.
When it was printed, Faithful Warnings to Prevent Fearful Judgments became the first of Mather's published execution sermons on the subject of piracy. It would not be his last. As Cotton Mather became comfortable with the form of the execution sermon, and his printed sermons became more and more popular, he realized that he didn't have to be the minister to the condemned to write a sermon about it. He didn't have to visit them in the jailhouse or witness their deaths. As a matter of fact, he didn't even need to be in the same colony as the condemned. On July 19, 1723, there was a mass execution of convicted pirates at Newport, Rhode Island. They were members of Captain Ned Lowe's crew. Lowe was one of the most notorious pirates of the era, a former resident of Boston who had turned pirate and earned a reputation for cruelly torturing his victims. In one engagement, he split his crew between two ships. One was captured and 35 survivors were brought to Rhode Island to stand trial. The governor and council from Massachusetts traveled to Newport and joined Rhode Island's governor in an admiralty court that handed down 26 death sentences. A first-person account describes what it was like to witness one of the largest mass executions in American history. Their black flag, with the portrait of death having an hourglass in one hand and a dart in the other, at the end of which was the form of a heart with three drops of blood falling from it, was affixed at one corner of the gallows. This is the flag they called Old Roger, and often they used to say they would live and die under it. Never was there a more doleful sight in all this land than while they were standing on the stage waiting for the stopping of their breath and the flying of their souls into the eternal world. And oh, how awful the noise of their dying moans. Despite having been 70 miles away in Boston at the time, Cotton Mather soon published a sermon titled Useful Remarks, an essay upon remarkables in the way of wicked men, about the death of the pirates. Since Mather did not pray over the pirates in the meeting house of the jail, there's less of a focus on trying to find redemption for the condemned. Since he was not actually present at the execution, there's no section recording the pirates' last words. Instead, this sermon is aimed squarely at his own flock, using the example of a terrible mass execution to urge them to follow the straight and narrow path. O impenitence that in the way which wicked men have trodden are hastening down unto the dead, there are now to come unto you twenty-six and a crew together from the dead, who with a hoarse but loud voice terribly call upon you to repent of your sins and not persist in such crimes as have brought them to what they are now come unto. If you will not hear the warnings of your faithful pastors, hear the roarings of twenty-six terrible preachers, that in a ghastly apparition are now from the dead calling upon you to turn and live unto God. It was the hand of the glorious God which brought these criminals to die in a place where his faithful servants took uncommon pains for their instruction and conversion. And it may be, who can tell, there were some elect of God among them who may have their salvation in this astonishing way accomplished. But how much it will add unto the displays of sovereign and mysterious grace if you that have had their dying words and groans and pains before you may find the means of your salvation in them. Oh, take a due notice of what you have seen in the way which these wicked men have trodden, and in the fearful end which their way has brought them to. As we've seen, Cotton Mather took pride in his successes in getting pirates to repent at the last minute as the gallows loomed. However, the pirate whom he's best remembered for ministering to is the one where he saw the least success. 
William Fly was something of a pathetic figure as a pirate, but he became a towering giant in the eyes of some for his resistance to Cotton Mather and the authorities in Massachusetts. He enlisted as a boatswain on a slave ship named Elizabeth in the spring of 1726, but early in the cruise, he and the crew became resentful of the abuse they suffered at the hands of the captain and officers. On May 27th, they mutinied, dragging the captain and first mate from their beds and throwing them overboard. The crew renamed the ship Fame's Revenge, elected William Fly captain, and began sailing up the east coast of North America. They stitched together a Jolly Roger and began attacking the ships they encountered along the coast. However, Fly and Fame's Revenge only managed to take a handful of ships before attacking the fishing fleet off Cape Ann. During one of the first engagements he fought in New England waters, the captive sailors he had aboard distracted Captain Fly, then overpowered him and took him in chains to Boston for trial. His piratical career had lasted only one month. In the week between Fly's capture and his execution, Cotton Mather tried all the tricks up his sleeve to get the pirate to publicly repent, providing a good example to his flock. The day after the trial, he made his first visit to the jail where William Fly and four other prisoners awaited their fates. He warned them that dying without repenting their sins would doom their souls. The great God is angry with you. You are within a few days to be thrown into those hands, which if you die in ill terms with heaven, you will find it a fearful thing to fall into. Now, tis only in the way of repentance that you can be saved from the inconceivable miseries of hell. Fly laughed in Cotton Mather's face, taunting him and refusing to make any expression of remorse. Asked if he was sorry for his role in killing the captain who had treated him and the rest of the crew so cruelly, Fly said, "'Tis a vain thing. I won't die with a lie in my mouth." Mather was so shocked that he left the jail, saying that he hoped to find Fly in a better frame when he returned. Mather returned to the jail three days later, and the two argued at length. Fly held his ground stating that any expression of remorse or repentance would be a lie, and he would not go to the gallows with a lie in his mouth. Asked to confess his sins, he refused to call the killing of the original captain and officers as a murder, saying his crime was committed in service to a greater good. I can't charge myself. I shan't own myself guilty of any murder. Our captain and his mate used us barbarously. We poor men can't have justice done us. There is nothing said to our commanders, let them ever so much abuse us, and use us like dogs. In a 1987 essay, Daniel Williams described Fly's reaction to Cotton Mather's advances. Fly would not be humbled. Not for all the boiling lakes of fire and brimstone paraded before him by the ministers would he throw off his defiance. He rejected all importunities to repent, and since submission to God required submission to man, Implicit in his rejection was a further refusal to submit to either ministers or magistrates. Rather than surrender his own self-righteous sense of self, his pirate pride, he preferred to risk eternal damnation. Fly's resistance was not done yet. In a more typical trial and execution, the condemned would attend church on the Sabbath day before they went to the gallows. William Fly refused to do even this, though his three co-conspirators attended Cotton Mather's sermon. 
and the printed version of Vile Port Upon the Sea, Mather would describe his attempts to redeem the stubborn pirate and explain Fly's absence in church on that last day. He declined appearing in the public assemblies on the Lord's Day with the other prisoners to be under the appointed means of grace because, forsooth, he would not have the mob to gaze upon him. Other pirates and murderers who had been counseled by Cotton Mather seemed willing to heed his advice in their last hours. They made penitent speeches from the gallows, said the prayers he had recommended, and generally made themselves into perfect examples of reformation to be held up before the community. William Fly refused to have any part in this farce. As he walked to the gallows, Fly adopted a jaunty air, carrying a small bouquet of flowers and tipping his hat occasionally to people in the crowd. Cotton Mather records it in the vial. He seemed all along ambitious to have it said that he died a brave fellow. He passed along to the place of execution with a nosegay in his hand, and making his compliments when he thought he saw occasion. Arriving there, he nimbly mounted the stage, and would fain have put on a smiling aspect. He reproached the hangman for not understanding his trade, and with his own hands rectified matters to render all things more convenient and effectual. Even on the scaffold, seen as the proper stage for prayer and remorse, Fly put on a smile and used his sailor's skill with a rope to correct the executioner's shoddy noose. As for his last words, William Fly didn't offer any of the platitudes Cotton Mather had suggested. Instead, he had a warning for the captains and shipmasters in the port city of Boston who might so abuse the men as to tempt them to turn pirate. He only said that he would advise the masters of vessels to carry it well to their men, lest they should be put upon doing as he had done. One of the pirates had been given a reprieve, so two of the other condemned men shared the scaffold with Fly, and they were willing to follow Cotton Mather's script. Cole and Greenville had much greater signs of repentance upon them. They made their prayers and seemed continually praying and much affected. They desired the spectators to take warning by them, and they mentioned profane swearing and cursing with drunkenness and Sabbath-breaking as crimes which were now particularly grievous to them. A minister present, having made pertinent and pathetic prayer, the officer, willing that all was possible might be done for their good, after some time asked them whether they would have another prayer. Fly did not accept the offer, but said, if the other two be ready, I am. However, the other two desiring it, another such prayer was made by another minister, and after that, another by a third, with which they joined attentively, while Fly looked about him, unconcerned. Until the moment the rope tightened around his neck, William Fly refused to acknowledge the authority of cruel ship's captains, the civil government of Massachusetts, Cotton Mather, or God himself. To turn this battle of the wits, one that he had ultimately lost, into a valuable lesson for the faithful, Cotton Mather would have to write a different sort of sermon. The vile port upon the sea wouldn't be a tale of sinners redeemed, but rather the folly of dying without accepting the Lord's grace. They who die in their sins, these die without wisdom. Sin is folly. Every sinner is a fool. If men die before they are converted from the error of their ways, they die without wisdom. To die unpardoned is to die miserable. 
To die with sin unbewailed and unforsaken and unrepented of is to die unpardoned. So to die, with folly not abandoned nor forgiven, to die with the wrath of God yet abiding on the soul, to die and carry away a guilty conscience which will gnaw and scourge and vex the soul and be within it a worm that will never die, certainly tis no wisdom to die so. By the 1720s, Mather was privately gloating in his diaries about the psychological toll he was taking on the pirates of New England. He claimed that pirate captains would force their prisoners to curse the name of Cotton Mather. One of the first things which the pirates who are now so much the terror of them that haunt the sea impose on their poor captives is to curse Dr. Mather. The pirates now strangely fallen into the hands of justice here make me the first man whose visits and company and prayers they beg for. Some of them under sentence of death choose to hear from me the last sermon they hear in this world. Pirates may have asked for Mather to pray for them after their capture, but when we researched pirates and the rules they imposed on themselves aboard ship last summer, we found no evidence that prisoners or new members of any crew were required to curse Cotton Mather's name. Though it was certainly wrapped up in personal pride, Mather also believed that his ministry to the pirates benefited his parishioners in Boston. Williams says, Mather's pirates struggled to repent, and he used their struggles to instruct. The overall lesson he wanted to inculcate was evangelical. If even the worst of sinners, such as murderous pirates, could be saved through repentance and conversion, then all New Englanders could be confident that they too might achieve redemption by turning to God. Regardless of whether their penitence was brought on by a sincere change of heart or by a sudden fear of hell, condemned pirates offered vivid proof that once humbled and penitent, even the most hardened of sinners might be turned into saints. William Fly would be the last of Cotton Mather's execution sermons for pirates. And Redeker argues that the death of William Fly marked the end of the golden age of piracy. From the end of the War of the Spanish Succession to this point, there had been a shared set of traditions and practices among pirates, passed down in an unbroken chain through a succession of crews, by splintering, by sailing and consorts, or by other associations, roughly 3,600 pirates, about 90% of all those active between 1716 and 1726, fitted into two main lines of genealogical descent. Captain Benjamin Hornigold and the pirate rendezvous in the Bahamas stood at the origin of an intricate lineage that ended with the hanging of John Phillips' crew in 1724. The second line spawned in the chance meeting of the lately mutinous crews of George Lothar and Edward Lowe in 1722 culminated in the executions of William Fly and his men in July of 1726. It was primarily within and through this network that the social organization of the pirate ship took on its significance, transmitting and preserving customs and meanings, and helping to structure and perpetuate the pirate's social world. In the end, Fly's body was gibbeted. It was taken out to Nix's mate, a tiny island in Boston Harbor alongside the main shipping channel. There, a scaffold was erected. William Fly's body was wrapped in chains and hung up on the scaffold as a spectacle for the warning of others, especially seafaring men. He had refused to attend church before his execution because he would not have the mob to gaze upon him. Yet, now everyone who sailed through Boston Harbor would gaze upon him. His gibbeted body would serve as a warning for any young sailor who was tempted to, 
as pirate Ned Lowe put it, make a black flag and declare war against all the world. Okay, that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about the history of pirates in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 080. We'll have more information about the Golden Age of Piracy, Cotton Mather and his execution sermons, and the recent discovery of what might be Black Sam Bellamy's bones. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 